You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Hi, I'm Amanda Olke, Adult Education Director here at the International Spy Museum, and I curated a section on Mata Hari in the new museum, and I am delighted to have a chance to talk to Dr. Julie Wheelwright today. She's the award-winning author of The Fatal Lover, Mata Hari and the Myth of Women in Espionage. Julie is a senior lecturer and the program director for the MA in Creative Writing, Nonfiction, at the City University of London. Julie published The Fatal Lover in 1993, but her interest in Mata Hari has not waned she was the historical consultant for the Matahari exhibition at the Fries Museum in the Netherlands that uh, opened last year, or the year before last, 20, actually. 2017. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. getting up there in time. Um, and she also convened the first multidisciplinary symposium on the World War I spy in October of 1917. October <laughs> of 2017, entitled The Legacy of Matahari. Women and Transgression, which coincided with the 100th anniversary of Mata Hari's death. I had the pleasure of speaking at that event, which covered topics ranging from Mata Hari's role in World War I propaganda to my own exploration of what made her appealing as an intelligence asset. Good to see you, Julie. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, I am really excited to learn more about your perspective. You have spent so much time on on Mata Hari. And um, for me, my whole life, she's seemed very well known, but I know that's not true for everyone. Could you give us a little background on her and and her lifetime and who she was in her Mm -hmm. lifetime? Well, she was born in Friesland in the north of Holland in 1876. And she's someone who had um, ra- a rather extraordinary childhood because her father was, a, was sold hats and he also speculated in oil shares. So as she was growing up, she was this adored child. Her father lavished money on her. She had her own little goat cart and she wore you know, really beautiful 
dresses to school, which the other girls were very envious of. But then there were a series of tragedies. So her father went bankrupt, um, and then he left. Her parents separated, and he left to, for Amsterdam. And then in 1891, her mother died, so the family was broken up, and she was sent to live with um, some godparents in a small town called Sneek, and they didn't know what to do with her. She was now a teenager, and I'm sure she was a bit of a handful. So they decided to enroll her to be a, t a kindergarten teacher. And um, she was, you know, and I'm going to use air quotes here, seduced by the headmaster at that school, who was a married man, and he was in his 50s. Um, and so we don't really know what happened, but she left under a kind of cloud. So she goes to live in Amsterdam, and she's now... At 19 years old, and she's a boor. She's had this very bourgeois upbringing. She's very well educated, but her marriage prospects are are terrible because um, her mother has her mother's dead, and her father's a bit of a ne'er do well. So she decides to answer an ad, Lonely Hearts ad, in an Amsterdam newspaper, and she meets Johnny McLeod. And Johnny McLeod is an officer in the Dutch East Indies Army. And I think she thought that she was marrying into money and that she was marrying this very, uh, you know, this sort of aristocratic, into, into, yeah. into this aristocratic family. But what she didn't realize at the time was that Johnny was actually the black sheep of the family. Um, he was he was twice her age, and they had this kind of whirlwind romance. And very passionate. From, Very passionate, yeah. yeah, because we have letters in which she sort of seems to be quite coquettish, and there's obviously a great kind of, you know, romance, and there's a lot of physical passion. attraction. Yes, physical yeah. attraction. Um, so even then, you can see she was a bit of a rebellious spirit because that's not the sort of thing that a well-brought-up young woman would do. Um, needless to say, they get married very quickly. Um, they have a, but, but as soon as they're married, Johnny, you know, comes home and says, well, you know, I'm lovely to see you, my darling, but I'm off to the brothels with my mates. That kind of thing went on. Really immediately. Yeah, yeah. Really immediately. And they were also living with her sister in Amsterdam and, um, uh, the, Greta and, uh, and the sister never got on. And Greta uh, is Matahari's. Uh, Greta is Matahari. So this was Matahari before she became Matahari. Um, so the couple have a son, Norman, and then Johnny has to go back to the Dutch East Indies with his family. And so there's a period where Matahari is living in Java and Sumatra. Uh, they have another child while she's there. The marriage is very unhappy. And one of the things that we now know is that Johnny suffered from syphilis, and he infected both his wife and his children. So, and unfortunately, Norman dies. And the story was always that Norman had been poisoned by a jealous nanny. Um, there was a sort of complicated scandal around that. Um, but it now seems very likely that Norman had died because of mercury poisoning, and mercury was used in the treatment of syphilis. So in, it, there's, a, there's been some new letters that were recently published in 2016 um, by Tresor in uh, Leeuwarden, and um, those letters make pretty clear that Matahari knew about the syphilis, and it was, you know, it was a real, there was a real sense of burning injustice about this. Right, anyway. she'd married this man. He'd infected her. The children were unwell because That's of right. it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
and and also throughout her life throughout her adult life she was always i think striving to regain that sense of of um propriety mm-hmm. and social standing that she'd lost when her mother died and her father had gone bankrupt and you know she was bitterly disappointed by MacLeod turning out to be you know this what rogue. was their quality of life um, in Java? Well, when they lived in Java, I think that you know they had servants. Um, they lived in a kind of colonial compound, um, and I think that she she felt in that society that she'd reached this kind of social standing that mm-hmm. she had that she had long been seeking. But I think that she was also treated with some sense of ambivalence by the other wives. Um, I know that the biographer Pat Shipman puts forward this argument that because of Matahari's had sort of dark hair and dark eyes that she was that, that the other wives may well have assumed that she was actually um, part Indo, you know, that, that she was that she was mixed race. Um, and that's also where um, she discovers amateur dramatics and she starts performing she wasn't dancing but they they would have these evenings where you know they would dress up in costume and they would be arabs or or they would be i don't know i mean i can't remember off the top of my head i can't remember mm-hmm. the other things but they but that but she would have observed the in she would observe this this uh, native dancing that's what i was going to say costumes she had and the temple seen. dancers mm-hmm. and so all of that w- became very influential later on in her life so by 1901, the couple has has arrived back in Amsterdam, and they go back to living with the dreaded sister-in-law, and um, they decide to separate. So originally, Matari actually takes her daughter Non with her, and then there's this period of uh, this very rocky period where she's trying to keep her daughter with her, but she has no money. So even though uh, Johnny has been told by the Dutch courts that he's going to have to pay her alimony and Madhari's been given custody of her daughter Non. Um, Johnny never pays the money and probably doesn't pay the money because it doesn't have it. I mean, he himself right, was right. constantly in debt and having to borrow money from his relations. So Madhari decides that she's going to leave her daughter with a family friend and she goes to Paris. So she goes to Paris, and her story to the press was always, I went to Paris because where does a runaway wife go? <laughs> um, and her other great story was that she went to Paris with a, you know, a franc in her pocket and went straight to the Grand Hotel. So she did apparently actually go to the Grand Hotel and probably stayed there one night, and mm-hmm. then she went to a rooming house and um, she, you know, again, this period follows where she's just desperately trying to find a way of making a living. So, in a proprietary, you know, in an appropriate way. Yes, that is yes, a struggle. I exactly, really, exactly. Yeah. So, in these letters that she writes to Edward MacLeod, who was Johnny's relation who took a kind of avuncular interest in her, she says, you know, I'm trying everything. So she applies to be, you know, a teacher of German conversation, a lady's maid, a lady's companion. But, but interestingly, one of the things that, she, one of the jobs that she doesn't succeed at, but has aspirations for, is to be a mannequin. So the mannequins were um, forerunners of fashion models. So these were women who were given clothes by the top fashion houses to wear in department stores. And so they would wander around the department stores and potential uh, customers would come up and ask them about the fabric and, you know, to ask, ask them about the latest style. 
And um, these women had to make up a name for themselves. So it was almost like, it was like a performance, right, really. Right. And then in 1908, you have the first catwalk in Paris. And Matahari was kind of on to that. I think that she had a really innate sense of what was fashionable and what was current, and also had a, had a, a really good sense of how to exploit that. Yes. So um, none of that comes to anything, but she does find work as an artist model. And an artist model was kind of one step right, down right. from being a, a little mannequin. bit risque. Exactly, because she has to take her clothes off, and she goes to Montmartre, and, and there, there's one of uh, a, a man who ran an art school wanted her to do this nude modeling, and he said it would be regular work. And he also made clear that she was going to have to take her clothes off, and he also made clear that she would make a lot more money if she would if, sleep yeah. with the clients. Yeah. And she says, uh, at first, she says no to both of those things, and then she eventually concedes and does this artist modeling in the nude, um, and that keeps body and soul together for a bit. So there's this very rocky period that follows, and she does actually, sometime around 1902, 1903, she goes back to Holland, and she's um, living with a relation with, I think it's an aunt of hers, and, she's, and she does actually get a job in a theater, so this was you know, wonderful new information to have. And she gets a part, and she's not very happy about the part because she has to play an old lady, which she doesn't That's realize. That's not what she wants to do. <laughs> which is not what she wants to do. And she also has to buy her own costumes. And on top of all of that, she's been told if she wants to get a better part, she has to sleep with the theater producer. So she sort of says, well, had enough of all of that. And she goes back to Paris. And this time, I don't know how, but she meets this uh, this French diplomat who was who probably becomes her lover. And he introduces her to Monsieur Guimet. She's also, just before that we now know, in December 1904, she has her first appearance at a salon as Matahari. So she's beginning to create this Exactly, persona. and she's doing this kind of exotic dancing. And she may also have well have been um, influenced by going to these international exhibitions. So there was one in Amsterdam and one in Paris. And, th and th they would have these sort of little villages, um, and there was a Malaysian village, and there was also an in, you know, from, from India. And there's this thought of the Orient, the exotic so the, Orient. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. And so being in Paris, the Parisians did, were not as familiar with the Dutch, well, they weren't familiar with the Dutch East Indies in the way that she was. So, so she kind of had this blank canvas to draw upon. So uh, this uh, French diplomat introduces, introduces her to Guimet, and Monsieur Guimet was an industrialist who had um, a kind of mission to educate the French public about Eastern religions, and he had gone on this, this pilgrimage to the East with an artist friend of his, and that artist friend had made all these amazing drawings, including sketches of dances that he had observed. So these would be Hindu, da you know, dances in Hindu temples, or they would be street performances. And these were all presented to Matahari, and out of that material... She wove this. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was just an incredible serendipity that they met, because it was a coming together of all sorts of different things. So it was partly giving her this credibility, because it was art, and it was education, and it was culture, but also she had access to these beautiful materials. Um, and, and she also was comfortable and proud of her body. Exactly. So she was willing to experiment with some of these dance types. That's right, and, and which involved sort of exposing her body. 
Um, but she also had great costumes because he had loaned her the breastplates and um, all the uh, jewelry and the headdresses. And, um, and, and again, you don't know whether, I'm not sure whether it was Gimi or Matahari, but they had um, the first performance, the debut, was at the Musée Gimi in the library, which has this marble floor. And I mean, it's a very, it's, it's a kind of intimate space, but it's very beautiful and well-appointed. Do you think, did he know she was creating this? What do you think? that she was creating this persona or do you think she presented herself to him as having background from her time in uh in the dutch indies just curious that's a really interesting question um i'm not sure what what Guimet would have thought about her what he knew about her what she told him about mm -hmm, her background mm -hmm. but whatever it was i mean she was i think the fact that she'd had this sort of cultured upbringing that she was a, she was a good linguist um, you know her French was good probably her German was very good um, and and she probably convinced him that she was a vehicle through which he could uh, you know expose the French public to these yeah. new ideas mm -hmm. that you know she it was about education mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. as far as he was concerned um, and the fact that you know the assembled audience a very you know, distinguished, yeah. distinguished and yeah. influential people see this performance was all to the good. So mm -hmm. that, you know, the fact that they were also being entertained and were, you know, this was an exotic thing, but it was also really novel. And of course, they yes. could see her body. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting seeing um, some of the images in the scrapbooks in the Fries Museum. Um, and and some you know some of the shots are of her in this ridiculous looking well to us they look like a ridiculous body stocking this flesh colored thing um, and I can't imagine what kind of material it would have been but that was the kind of height of exoticism at the time so March 1905 she has this debut and um, she's enormously successful and I think that when I went to the Fries Museum all those years ago and had a look at the scrapbooks for the first time, I was really struck just by how famous she was. And immediately. And immediately. I mean, it, overnight, suddenly she was dancing at La Scala and she was dancing at the Opera and, you know, she was being paid once, you know, one venue paid her 10,000 francs for one performance. And also, you can imagine this woman who's been scrimping away and, and, and trying to get her life together and she realizes her dream mm -hmm. and and I think that she was very clever at dealing with the press because I think she realized that she had to keep feeding this monster of um, attention you know that needed attention and you know she's just very strategic about it and sort of saying things to wow them and titillate but not but keeping intact this artistic um, creation of herself. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the really clever things that she did was that uh, she didn't get to be a mannequin in a department store, but what she did was she obviously had some kind of arrangement with different designers, and so she would be seen at, you know, the races at L'Enchant, or she would be seen um, in the theater. Um, she would be seen in different, different locations in these gorgeous outfits, which was a way of advertising it's their It's like wares. the Oscars. It's like the red carpet it, now it, it, where jewelry is yes, loaned absolutely. to actor, actresses, and, and they wear it. So she was ahead of her time. 
but and and she and it was also very much of the moment because because when she is seen at the Longchamp races, um, and I can't remember which year it was, but it was w would have been sort of 1906, 1907. There's another very very famous designer who also parades his mannequins at the Longchamp races in these new outfits, and everyone talks about them. So she was so of her moment. And, I th and, and it w it's also fascinating because she's performing on stage and she's performing in salons, but she's also performing in public. So she's always performing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for Matahari, she has this huge success, but of course it doesn't last because she's not a trained dancer. Um, and she did actually uh, audition it's for Diaghilev. It's very Diag sensational. It's very sensational. And, and she did once um, audition for Diaghilev who um, was this famous um, impresario, and he was really quite cruel to her and, you know, just dismissed her. And that is formal ballet. And that was, well, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he, um, he uh, was the one who mounted the Rites of Spring with Nijinsky, so he was very much of this traditional classical, uh, you know, dance performance, and she really didn't fit that bill. Um, so what happens, uh, you know, her career begins to wane, she starts falling down the bill, and of course, you know, she has to keep up appearances. So what she does is she falls back on her other career, which was um, performing as a courtesan. So this is really important to understanding her story as an espionage agent because she is moving in circles where she is sleeping with and has friendships with very powerful men, very powerful and influential men, including uh, Monsieur Malvi, who was the Minister of War. So he was Minister of War before the First World War mm -hmm. breaks out. Um, Is she discreet as a courtesan? Yes, I think she was. Mm -hmm. And I think, and there was a whole system set up mm -hmm. in, um, in Paris so that there were these um, places known as the Maison des Rendezvous where you could just basically go and rent a room. And that this was something that, you know, well-to-do women, if they were down on their luck, would engage in this kind of sex trade. So it wasn't that, you know, she wasn't in a brothel or she wasn't walking right. the streets. Right, right, So she was doing something. So it was something more than just But sex. I knew she had a, a number of long-term relationships yes. with people. Yes. And they were financial relationships. But... Um, she didn't get them in trouble. You know, I was just curious about her her discretion with this sort mm -hmm. of relationship because that's also very much a part of the spy world. You know, can you keep a secret? And yes, yes. And I think that she was always very conscious of her reputation mm -hmm. as well and that, that it just would not have served her any purpose to be either indiscreet or get any of these men into trouble or mm -hmm. demand things that she knew that she wasn't going to get. I mean, mind you, there there was um, a man who was a banker, um, uh, Monsieur Rousseau, who she took up with for some considerable length of time. And the story that his family would tell, uh, his, his wife um, would tell, is that Mat Matari basically got him to run through all of his money, and then when he was, he, you know, there was no more, then she left him. I don't know what the truth of that story is, but there was definitely a time in her life when she sort of retired from the stage to live with this man at, his, at a chateau in the Loire Valley, so. She knew how to spend the money. <laughs> <laughs> she, she knew how to spend the money. So, so by the time, uh, of World War One, mm -hmm. 
Where is she? What's she doing? What are okay, her circumstances so the, so like? So August 1914, Mata Hari is trying to stage a comeback. And she's got And how this, old is she? Uh, uh, so she is, so 1914, she's born in 1876. Oh, so, so she's 38. 38. 38 years old. Yes, yeah, so it's a dangerous age. Um, the French would say that 40 is the dangerous age for a woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. How ridiculous yes, is that? indeed. Um, uh, yeah, so 1914, they're at the Metro. Uh, she's she's got this gig at the Metropole Theater in Berlin. She's going to stage her big comeback, and uh, and she knows lots of people in Berlin. And in fact, she's had an affair with um, with a German officer named Kuypert, and she's even been been out to see the military maneuvers with him. And uh, she knows a man who's a, who's a police officer. And she's do you think she him. had any allegiance? I mean, she's Dutch, so she's she's not. Do you think she had any affinity for the German side, or if she's been out to see the maneuvers? It's really hard to say. I mean, I think she probably had a fairly fractured sense of allegiance because uh, I, I think she probably, after having been away in the Dutch East Indies and living in Paris for so long, I think, that when she did eventually have to go back there, she found it very dull. Mm -hmm. And and the Dutch... Back to the Netherlands, yeah. yeah. And, the, and I think that she found the Dutch very puritanical. Mm. Um, and I think that we have to remember that Paris was like this... It was a place of liberalism, and it was a place of art, and you could live your life as a bohemian in Paris mm -hmm. in a way that you probably couldn't in Amsterdam or Rotterdam, let alone Leibarden at the time. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So just to go back to, to Berlin, um, she's, she's hoping that she's going to have this huge success with this new production. And then the war breaks out. And... Ironically, the German government considers her an, en an enemy alien because she's lived in France for so long. So they seize her furs and they seize her jewels. And um, she has to go back to Holland because she has no other choice. And she's not very happy about that. Because she fetches up in Holland and she has no money. And of course, what she does is <laughs> she finds a man to, to lend her some money. And then, and then she meets Baron van der Capellen. Um, who puts her up in a house in The Hague and she becomes his mistress. So by night, and she actually does mount a couple of performances in, um, I think it's in Rotterdam, and you know, they mm -hmm. don't really go anywhere. The Dutch are not interested no, in No, and this is not as exotic for them either. No, no. So by 1915, she's pretty restless and she decides to go back to Paris. So the first trip back to Paris was ostensibly to collect her belongings. 
and nothing much happens while she's in Paris. And, and because, um, of course, Holland is neutral in the war, but you know the war is going on in Belgium and in France, so she has to take this circuitous route, traveling through Spain and Great Britain. So by December 1915, she's in The Hague, and she's a bit bored with her life, and so she decides that she's going to go back to Paris. And on the way to Paris, um, she has to travel via the UK because there's this circuitous route, obviously because it can't travel through Belgium. And so when she gets to Folkestone, she gets in the UK, she's picked up and interrogated because the well, I think I think they were just interrogating anyone. I mean, she was considered suspicious because she was a single woman traveling on her own um, that during a war. Been, during yeah. a war, and that would have been enough to alert them. Um, nothing in particular happens, but she is now noted. You know, she's now considered a suspicious character by the British, but not so suspicious that they're going to stop, stop her. her. Um, so then she travels, she makes her way to Paris, and, and she stays in Paris, and um, then makes her way back to The Hague. So nothing appears to have particularly happened except that she has made, she's been stopped and interrogated by the British. She's got a little red the flag. First time. Yes. She's got a little red flag that's been raised. And by that spring, so a few months later, she goes back to Paris, and this time, quite a number of things happen. So she meets Georges. So first of all, she falls madly in love with this Russian who has um, been enlisted in the French army, uh, Vadim de Maslov. And um, you know, she falls very hard for him, and he's very much younger than her. And she says that they, you know, they fall so madly in love that they've decided that they're going to get married. She describes herself as his fiance. But she's obviously got this problem because he doesn't have any money and she doesn't have any money. Um, so she goes to the Dizium Bureau and she's ostensibly just Which there. is French intelligence. Sorry, which is French intelligence. And, and she's ostensibly there just to pick up a pass so that she can go and visit her lover in Vittel, which is one of those resort towns outside of Paris, which is where he's staying because he's been injured in the war. So while she's there, she has, she's introduced to Georges Ladoux, who's head of the Deuxième Bureau. And they meet, and they have this sort of slightly ridiculous conversation where they seem to speak in code to each other. And they're both kind of sounding each other out. And between them, they kind of concoct this scheme where um, he, he, he proposes to her that she spy for the French. And she says, well, I need to think about this. So she goes away and she comes back a few days later and she says, yes, I would like to do it, but if I give you something great, um, I want a million francs. And he says, yes, you can have a million francs, which is an absurd amount of money. But she thinks pay. she'll be able to settle down with her lover. lover. Exactly. And so that, you know, in her words, she won't have to betray Vadim anymore. So she can retire from being a courtesan. Fair enough. So her great plan, or rather the plan that she and Ladoux come up with, is that she's going to seduce the Kaisers, the, grand, grand, the crown prince of Germany, because she thinks that um, you know, she has contacts in Belgium, and because she's Dutch, she can get into Belgium and she can carry out this mission. So with this under her belt, um, and, and she does things like she rings up Ladoux and asks him for money so that she can buy dresses, so that she can look the part when she goes to Belgium. Anyway, 
So she sets off and she has to go via, via Great Britain to get to Spain. So while she com when she comes to, uh, uh, sorry, what did we Falmouth. Say? Falmouth, this is the second time that the British pick her up. And she's sent to Scotland Yard and she's interrogated by Sir Basil Thompson, who's head of the who's head of Scotland Yard. And they think the reason why they picked her up is that they have mistaken it's a case of mistaken identity, that she is Clara Benedict's, um, who's also a wanted, well, suspected to be a German spy and also a dancer. And she says, No, 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 it's all a case of mistaken identity. And again, you read the transcript, and it's really, really strange. You don't really quite know what's going on. Um, and, and this is also the reason why I got interested in Matahari in the first place, because I just casually read this file. It was actually at the National Archives in London to read something else. And I thought, oh my god, this is so, what is going on here? I was just so curious. And then the other thing that they'd done was that they went through her luggage, and she's traveling with these 12 trunks of luggage, and there are cigarette cases and, you know, bits Perfume of her costumes and, yeah. and riding boots and everything else. And so that, that kind of inventory gives you a, gave me such a sense of her character. So, I, you know, I, I wanted to know more. Um, anyway, so, so while she's there, unbeknownst to her, so she has to, you know, she's actually kept for a number of days and interrogated several times and she has to sort of present her bona fides. And one of the things that happens is that Basil Thompson sends a telegram to Georges Ladoux, and Georges Ladoux says, I don't know anything about this woman. He sort of he disavows all yes, knowledge. He, he disavows yeah. on all knowledge of her. Um, so she, she heads her way to Spain. And while she's there, she thinks she's now on this mission for Georges Ladoux. Who's already not backing her up. Exactly. Um, and we don't know whether George Ladue was ever backing her up because he claims he claims that all along he was just he was just playing along with her. I don't think that really is the case. I think that's the case that he makes afterwards. I think that he really thought that she was going to be an important asset. And if we think about it, well why shouldn't she be? I mean she had she had the ear of very powerful men and the other thing that we need to, that, that's important to this story is that Georges Ladoux had another female agent named Martha Richard, and he had actually, who he had recruited uh, um, a, a year before, and Martha Richard was actually given this mission also to go to Madrid and to seduce the German naval attaché. So this is sort of his standard operating procedure with the women spies working with exactly. him. Exactly, and Martha Richard, after the war, gets the Légion d'honneur, and she says, I got the Légion d'honneur, and Matahari got executed, and I don't know what the difference is. And Martha Richard also, interestingly, I, I just found this out fairly recently, had also come to Paris originally um, from the countryside, and she was also a prostitute. So, and also yeah. a performance. So they, they, you can see that there was already this kind of weird sort of precedent mm -hmm. had been set. So Matahari arrives in Madrid, and of course she goes and stays at a fancy hotel. And while she's there, she meets the German, I mean, sorry, rather, she meets, the, she meets Colonel Denvignet, who's the French ambassador. So he's the, you know, the military attaché, and he can, he can get her into places and... Um, she actually lets, him, lets it be known to him that she's working for Ladue, which of course she shouldn't have done. Um, she does things like she writes uh, letters 
in, uh, she doesn't write in Secret Ink, but she writes letters to Ladue and puts them into the Hotel Post, which again- Not she, good tradecraft. Which, which was not good tradecraft because of course the hotel employees were all in the pay, either of the Germans or the French or both. Um, and she decides, so she, she's writing to Ladue and saying, well, why, are, why don't I hear anything from you? I mean, what's going on? So what she decides to do is she takes matters into her own hands and she goes and visits a, a, an officer by the name of Calais, who is the military attaché for the Germans. So the first time she goes, um, and she, you know, there's this wonderful description of how she meets him, and they kind of, you know, exchange pleasantries, and then she asks him for a cigarette, and she plays with her feet, and she does everything a woman does when she wants to seduce a man, and which she does. Um, but the but the thing that's really interesting about this so she that's the first time she meets him and she meets him the second time is that he really does give her important mm -hmm. information mm -hmm. and there's five pieces of information that she gives him. Um, so I'm just going to call up my document here. So um, I I recently came across uh, this document that was written on the 5th of October 1917 from Saint Lazare by Matahari. And it's a letter to Poincaré, the president of the French Republic. And so this is written exactly 10 days before her execution. Mm -hmm. And it really is like her last attempt to save right. her life. And in this document, she, she says that there were five pieces of information that she gave Georges Ladoux. And, um, and actually, they were, they were sort of real pieces of, of intelligence that she passed to him. And... Um, you know, I mean, obviously this letter does no good whatsoever, um, but she does actually, you know, it's another attempt to say, look, I gave you um, information that was really useful. And her argument, which I didn't know about before, is that she says that Denvigny then goes back to Paris before she does and passes this information off as his, his own. own. And also sort of, you know, lands her in, you know, lands her into... Well, you know, she's arrested, so, so he, he completely washes his hands of her as well. So the other betrayal that goes on is that um, Calais is writing a series of telegrams from Madrid to Berlin in a code that the Germans have, the Germans know the French have already cracked. So that, that's one argument. There's some controversy about this, but let's just go with that. That, so interpretation, many, yes. of, that yeah. interpretation of history for the time being. Um, so Matari decides that, um, okay, the time has come. She needs, she's going to go back to Paris because she hasn't heard anything from Ladue. She's probably, you know, she's also running out of money. Um, and she feels like she's completed her mission. She feels she's like got she, a million dollars worth she's of got intelligence these, yes, in her yeah, mind. Exactly. She's got these five precious pieces of intelligence and she goes back to, she makes her way back to Paris uh, by train and, um, she arrives at the beginning of January. She's staying in a hotel, and and uh, Ladue has two detectives, Tarlet and Monnier, who are following her around. And they have followed her around before, and she spots them. And uh, they, they describe how you know one night in the hotel dining room they see her crying, and you really get the sense that her life is beginning to unravel. And she's, she's trying to get a hold of Denvigny, and he won't take her, you know, he won't receive her. She goes to see Ladue, and he won't receive her. And she doesn't understand what's going on, because she's, she's passed, and she's done what she's supposed to do, and she wants her money. 
and she also hasn't heard anything from uh, Maslow, and she's feeling, you know, really frightened by this right. point. So, um, she, and then another month goes by, and the knock comes on the door, and she's arrested. She's arrested on charges of espionage, and she's taken to Saint Lazare prison. And there's a terrible, bitter irony to her being taken to Saint Lazare prison because that is the prison that they take the prostitutes to. Um, if they show any signs of having venereal disease, so this is just and it's really, nightmare. This is yeah. nightmare for her. And uh, so she arrives, and the first thing she says is that she wants a telephone and she wants a bath. True to form. True to form. And she's writing these letters. And and you know, I th- you sort of get the impression that she doesn't really believe she's going to get all the things that she wants. But it's just a way of like that's how trying she, to trying yeah. to hang on to this sense of who she is in the face of this terrifying thing that's happening around her that she doesn't understand um so what so then what what begins is a series of interrogations uh by Boucheron Captain Boucheron so she's she's in Salazar prison um she's terribly upset so while Matahari's in Madrid she finds out five really vital pieces of information from from Calais, and one of them is that she finds she discovers that there's a center for German espionage in Barcelona. She also discovers that the Germans and the Turks are engaged in submarine operations off the Moroccan coast, and obviously that's Morocco is now a French colony, which turned out to be true. Um, she also uh, finds out a bit about a new method for transporting secret ink, um, hiding them under the fingernails and that the current recipe that the French are using was unsafe. Um, she also uh, gives um, the French a key to French, uh, the key to French radios and aviation. So this, this, is the doc- this is from the letter that she wrote to Poincaré and she says, I have gathered for France five pieces of important information current that the French military authorities in Paris as well as Madrid had not known at the time. I handed over the first two concerning the center of German espionage in Barcelona and the German submarine which directly disembarked munitions, German officers and Turks on the coast of Morocco on the 15th of December 1916 and she gave that information to the Ministry of War in Paris. And then she also communicated with them and also with the French military attaché in, in Madrid about, she says, the, other, the three others concerned the transport of secret ink, the key to French radios and aviation, and I handed them over towards the 20th of December 1916. So this is the information, those three pieces of information were the things that she handed over to Colonel Danvignet and then he he claimed that this was information that he had gathered himself exactly Mm -hmm. so she doesn't go into detail about that but but i had um but i had sent this document to de florian altenhauser who's a french sorry a german German. a german Mm -hmm. historian Historian. and he said that you know he he verified that all of this was um really important information Mm -hmm. for the french and, you know, you can't help but think that, you know, she's so disadvantaged being a woman and being the kind of woman that she is mm-hmm. that that Ledoux just sees her as, you know, someone who can act as a courtesan to get... And, and it, like, even that is so strange. Like, she's a courtesan who's going to get information out of men. But what kind of information is she expected to get out of them when she does get information and presents it 
to Denvignier. It's taken out of her hands and presented, and he presents it as his own information. That so doesn't on, happen. <laughs> so on the one, but but do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of on the one hand, she's sort of regarded as this sort of means by which mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. can you can compromise a man because of his sexual activities. But then she's also expected to supply information. But then when she does supply the information, it's appropriated by someone else. So you sort of get the sense that she can't, she can't win. Right. So she, so she ends up in Paris, back in Paris um, in January 1917. She's followed by these two detectives. And she knows that her end, you know, she knows that her time is, time is running out for her because Denvigné won't see her. Um, Ladu won't see her, and she's had no information from her lovers. So um, she knows that things are pretty dire, and she doesn't know how to get herself out of this situation. And then, of course, by February 1917, she's arrested at her hotel, and she's taken to Saint-Lazare Prison for Women, which is deeply ironic because it's the place that the prostitutes are sent if they show any signs of having venereal disease. And she spent her whole you know, this, 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 this long time uh, as a woman trying to defend herself against these charges of being that, con you know, being a yeah. prostitute. And there, she, there she is being treated Incarcerated, yeah. Um, and and San Lazar Prison for Women was a dank, dark, dark, horrible place. And you get the sense that there's a kind of psychological wearing down of, uh, of, this, um, of this spy that is going on because she's interrogated 17 times and you know she's asked over and over and over and over again and she continues to protest her innocence until she says one day to um, to Bouchardon, Captain Bouchardon who's in her interrogator, okay today I'm going to tell you the truth. And then she reveals that when she was living in The Hague in 1915 she had a visit from the a German consul by the name of Kramer, and he had offered her 20,000 francs, and, and she, she puts it very casually. So he had just said to her, well, you know, we know that you're going to go, you're planning to go to back to Paris, and here's 20,000 20, francs, which was a lot of money in, at the time. And if you f happen to find out anything interesting, be in touch. Be in touch. Yeah. And he also gives her three bottles of secret ink, and then he bows his way out of the door and that is that and she says no I never had any intention of giving the Germans anything she says she threw the bottles of secret ink into the canal outside of her door and she keeps the money because after all the Germans had taken her furs and her jewels and frozen her bank accounts and all of that had added up to 80,000 francs so this was just a mere was, pittance compared exactly. to that and that's the story that she sticks to until the end of her life However, yeah. we now know that in 1915, she took a trip to Cologne, and while, and while she's in Cologne, in Germany. She, in Germany, she meets with Colonel Walter Nikolai, who's the head of the German intelligence services, and also with a young woman who is head of the Antwerp services by the name of Elizabeth Schragmuller. And Elizabeth Schragmuller is put in charge of this sort of exotic woman who she really can't quite fathom to do this spy training and they train her in secret ink and they train her in observation and they also um, 
I think they give her some sort of information about coding. I mean, so she's given some basic spy. So it is so interesting because the understanding with people is like, oh, Matahari, she's just this crazy, jumped-up dancer who didn't know what she was doing. But it's fascinating to think she actually went through some rudimentary spy training from a yes. professional service. Yeah. And Elizabeth Schragmiller quite you know, is quite interesting because they, they go, for example, to the theater and she observes her and she says, you know, like she's not she's not um, she's not Melita Norwood. She's not someone who is going to sit quietly in the corner and that is her cover. No, she's very flamboyant, she knows everyone and um, you know, she's an actor, she's a performer and this is what she is all about. Um, and Elizabeth Schrackmiller says, Well this may be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> She's um, not under the radar she's in not any under the way. Radar. And it's very interesting to see what, what Nick, Walter Nikolai says about her because he says that there were, there were various people who had come to him and said, you know, she would be a great asset. And they, they, he describes her as um, a golden fish that had swum into their hands. So they really, so they saw her potential to be a great asset because of the people that she knew. Um, because of the net, the networks that she had, and because you know she was Dutch, so she was able to travel around Europe in a way that if she was either French or German, it would have been more complicated. Now, did she supply the Germans with any information? Do we know? Well, that that is a, that is a that is a sort of moot point because whatever information she supplied i think she did there were there were reports there were some letters but they were very you know it was information that was not terribly useful to the germans but the problem is of course that when matahari meets ladu for that for you know those two famous meetings where where she sits with him in his office and says you know i would like to spy for i would like to spy for the french she doesn't tell him that she's already a double agent, so she's not playing by the rules. And, um, you know, the, the French actually had grounds for arresting her. Um, according to, the, to French law, I mean, she was guilty. I mean, yeah. they had enough information. They didn't even need very much information. But, you know, they did also, there's also this huge subtext that goes on in July 1917 during her trial. So she has the audacity when she's being interrogated in the court to say, you know, I like to sleep with men. I like to sleep with lots of different nationalities. I like to compare nationalities. And this was just such an outrageous statement. And it was so contrary to the role that women were expected to play. I mean, she was basically just far too honest. And the other problem that she faced was that, well, she's faced a number of problems. I mean, the fact that she had a, a lawyer who was an expert in international trade law and he knew nothing about criminal law, the fact that she was tried in a courts martial and she was not tried as, as a civilian. So there were all these things that were stacked against her. And what was the, what was the evidence? I mean, she's finally, she confessed, but before mm. that, what were they going on? What, what could they? Well, the fact that she, well, they knew that, that she had had contact with the Germans um, in Berlin. So there were various people, the Alfred Kuypert, who she'd had an affair with, 
um, this Griebel, who was a police officer, the fact that she had been seen with these people and she admitted to knowing them, that was considered very suspicious. Um, the fact that she'd received this money, she admitted to receiving the money from Kremer, and she, you know, she had her story about what she did with that money, but, ne but nonetheless, she had received money for espionage services, whether she was a good or bad spy, right. as far as they were concerned, was irrelevant. And what about these tele or, or these radio? They also had yeah, the radio. telegrams mm -hmm. that they had intercepted between between Madrid and Berlin, and you know, again, we were talking about the the question of whether they had been sent in a code that the Germans knew the French had already broken or not. Needless to say, they did decipher these telegrams and. It may well be that the Germans had set her up because this was very convenient for them because, you know, they'd already begun to have their suspicions about Matahari and it was very convenient for them to have her out of the way. So everyone kind of wanted her out of the way. Everyone for, wanted her yeah. out of the way. And, and the one thing we haven't yet talked about is the fact that she was such a fantastic scapegoat. She was, she was Dutch. She was also a divorced woman. She was a courtesan. And she was everything that the French did not want women to be at the time. And she was all so, and and they and she was famous. So they've caught this famous woman is a spy. And, what could and they, they caught her red-handed. And what could she, what could they blame on her? Exactly. What, what was the well? She was held responsible for the death of fifty thousand. 50,000 French soldiers. Because the, the French were having, had just experienced so many losses and exactly. so many defeats. Exactly. The, things were going very badly for the Allies in 1917. So, you know, it was very convenient to have this. If it could all be her fault, yeah. then. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, and, and we know that she is tried and found guilty and she is tried and found guilty and she's and she's um, she's sentenced to be executed so she goes back to her cell at Salazar prison and she has to wait until October and in the meantime she is acti actively writing to the Dutch embassy and tr pleading with them to try and intervene but it's really far too late by that time and you can also see I mean this document that that has recently surf surfaced from you know this letter she writes to Poincaré on the 5th of October 1917 is really fascinating because you know she lists all of the reasons why she was actually innocent and and she lists all the reasons why she was actually working for the French and she should be let go and some of it's really poignant because she says you know um, but this is one of the things that I th I think as a female character or a historical subject she's so interesting because she's not passive in this process no she not is at all. fighting for her life um, I mean she's still refusing to tell the truth but but um, but she hasn't been telling the truth for a long time. No, well, for one thing, yeah, for one thing, she's created herself. <laughs> she's and, created yeah. her own mythology. Um, yeah, she says. Um, yeah, she says about. Um, I also told them I had powerful relations in Germany, and that only by using these relations would I be able to give France the services asked. So, in other words, she's admitting here that she was willing to sleep with whoever in order to get the information that that you know the French needed. And, and then she says, in accepting France's offer, so this is Ladoux's offer, I agreed on the condition that France would never discuss the means of which I thought to serve. I mean, clumsily put, probably badly translated, but basically she, she's saying, I don't want anybody to know that this is what I, that this is what I did. Um, 
but but also in this letter she says um, let me just find his line here because it's a killer um, what I had given the German attaché was worth nothing. What I obtained from him and immediately given to France was important. So she's saying, I didn't give the Germans anything, but what I found out, the intelligence I gave your country was very important. But, you know, Denvignier claimed it as his own. Um, and then she says towards the end, um, so this is, she said, so this is about... Um, uh, accepting the offer to spy for Georges Ladoux. She says, all my happiness was on the line, which I thought was um, quite poignant. And she says, I was incapable of treason. Um, Later I thought more about my marriage with Captain Maslow, by which I would reestablish my position in society. So this is what we were talking about earlier. So I think she was really powerfully motivated to regain that sense of being a respectable woman, so and it, and she's such a such a bag of contradictions because on the one hand we remember her for being so outspoken about her sexuality and being someone who was so flamboyant and so exotic and showing off but her she, body and everything yeah. else, but what she's really yearning for is to settle down with this Captain Maslow and her the you know this man who she probably really loved and to re-establish her position in society to be a respectable woman. And she says, um, so I could re-establish my position in society and that my divorce and my life in the theater ever since had caused caused me to lose. So she's saying once she'd married Johnny, she'd been divorced, she'd gone on stage, she was a disrespectable woman and she wanted that back. Isn't wow. that, isn't that it's, interesting? It's so interesting. And she she did not get that back, but instead she's executed and becomes a legend. Yes, and we can talk about, we should talk about the, the day of her execution. Yes. Because, because um, uh, so she was actually tried in a closed court, and the only, there was very few people who were allowed to actually witness the execution, and some of them were, of course, intelligence officers or police officers, and those are the ones that wrote the accounts because mm-hmm. the, they were the eyewitnesses. And of course, they write lots of lots of things about how you know this was this disrespectable woman <laughs> who was vanquished, you know, responsibly the greatest spy, the tw- greatest female spy of the 20th century, who's responsible for the deaths of 50,000 men, yada yada yada, and that goes around the world. But the other thing that happens is that nobody comes forward to claim her body because it was considered too dangerous. So her body is do- donated to a medical school. And in that vacuum of information, all these rumors Right, because arise. there's no body, there's no burial. There, That's right, right. right, there's nowhere to go and physically see the vanquished slut, as it were. Um, and so one of the rumors is that um, she was actually wearing a fur coat and she threw it open and the, fire, the men in the firing squad were so dazzled by her gorgeous body that, you know, that they misfired and she was able to escape. And then another story is that you know a man on a white horse came charging through the woods and scooped her up and took her away um and and actually it was natalie barney i think who um 
who actually did uh, went around and did some interviews and tried to find out about these rumors and found out that they were false. And she later publishes that. She wanted to sort of resurrect Matahari's reputation. But also, in that vacuum of information, all, you know, that's when her th this idea of the spy courtesan really takes hold and is promoted and she enters into popular culture. And the very first biography of Matahari is written in, is written, is published in 1917. And it's, it's highly fictionalized. And of course, her own exploitation of the media, having given all these contradictory stories about being a, being a Hindu princess and, and, you know, being, a, being Javanese and, you know, whatever. Where did the um, truth lie? Well, that all, that all kind of came back to bite her because then anybody could say whatever they wanted because there was so much... Out there. There was so yeah. much out there. I mean, she'd already mythologized herself. And, you know, the, the, history, of, of the, the history of the history is really interesting because it's only when Sam Wagner writes his biography in 1964 that we have someone saying, well, hang on a minute, she wasn't guilty because there's no evidence that she was guilty. And she was a scapegoat, and she was a victim. And then I think that, you know, when I came along, I was saying, yes, and there's a lot more to this, because let's place her in her context, and let's see what was being said about other women spies at the time, and what is the meaning of this story, and why has it endured? And why do you think it's endured to this day that we still hear about, you know, if a, if a female spy is arrested in the United States, there's probably going to be a Mata Hari headline. Yes. So why has she endured? Well, I think one of the reasons why she's endured is because I think it's something, there's, some, there's something psychological about women straying into these male spheres of influence. I mean, even though we have, like now in 2019, we have a lot of women who work in the intelligence services, and we've had women working in the intelligence services for a long time. Much longer than people really are aware of. Exactly, but the, but the female spies we tend to know about have, I think, it's, I, I think it's because they've so entered popular culture in this way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I was growing up, I used to watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, and Natasha Fatali, you know, the, the Cold War, Soviet, you know, I mean, they never... The vamp. The vamp. Yeah. That was my idea. I thought that was Matahari. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think that there's something so intriguing about this figure who is, you know, she's exotic, she's beautiful, but she's also deadly. And, yeah. and, and she doesn't live... The femme live, fatale. The femme fatale, and she really doesn't operate in the domestic sphere. She's kind of the rejection of everything domestic. So, you know... Edith Cavell, for example, is executed before Matahari, and she's a nurse, and she's an older woman, and she's kind of this caring figure. And when Matahari was executed, the Germans actually produced this thing called a magic wallet, and it had a postcard of Edith Cavell on one side and a postcard of Matahari on the other. And it was literally the Madonna and the whore mm -hmm. putting those two images together. And the reasons why the Germans did this was because they wanted to point out the the Allies' hypocrisy in claiming that, that it was barbaric to shoot a woman when the yeah. Allies had just done the same thing with Matahari. And I think that that, that captures you know, um, the, this idea of this female spy perfectly. You know, she's the rejection of everything that we think about women and caring and the role that they were supposed to play. 
Well, and I was fascinated um, speaking to a German historian, Florian, who you mentioned earlier, said, well, if she was truly a German spy, why haven't the Germans ever, ever really come forward and claimed her? And he said, why would they? You know, it's just so much better to have the French continue to look like they executed an innocent woman. I thought, well, that summarizes the wilderness of mirrors and the spy game (laughs) right there. Yes, indeed. And it's such a complicated story and it's so nuanced. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that one of the things that's so valuable about this story is that, you know, she could have not been discovered by Mosugime and given that platform. And we never would have heard of her and she probably would have died as sad and lonely death unless she'd managed to find someone someone to, to marry to her. marry her but she had that moment in the limelight you know she had such a tragic life you know marrying uh, you know the, the tragedy of her childhood marrying Johnny losing her child um, uh, you know having non taken from her and yet she did this magnificent thing this amazing thing and she must have had something all those people to come flocking to see her. I don't I think it was much more than just being able to see her body oh star power uh, charisma I, I, exactly yeah. and and you, you know um, we know that dance historians now have discovered that she invented a dance you know the Hindu dance which was conti- you know which w- women were still performing in France you know up until the period after the second world war so she really did something profound she probably had absolutely no idea that that's what she was doing but um, I I think she's left quite a rich legacy for us thank you so much Julie It's it's really been a pleasure it's been great thank you Amanda thank you for listening to SpyCast remember every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.